Okay, that should do. I'm Kian. I'm Owen. If you can hear us, you're listening to Off the Wagon Reviews. I had a problem thinking about it there. I couldn't think of it. <laughs> it's like we've had so many different names, depending on uh, who, who we're talking to and what we're talking about. Owen, what are we talking about this time? Uh, today we're going to talk about the 1986 movie, The Name of the Rose. Name of the Rose. Cool. Uh, 1986. Who's in it, Owen? Uh, it's uh, Sean Connery. That guy. <laughs> as the main character. William of Baskerville. William of Baskerville. That sounds um, familiar. And a young Christian Slater. Oh, a young, is he good? A young Christian Slater. Uh, Would you describe his performance as good? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, and F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham. Now, I recognized his... I, I didn't quite recognize him. I said that I knew the look of him. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. like, you like that? I know the look of him. And we'll find out later, is he in anything else that I, I should actually recognize him from? You probably do, I'd say. Yeah. Is he that guy? He's an interesting one, actually. Is he like Dick Miller? Dick Miller is like the... I think you'll like him. I he's the or that guy for me. <laughs> we'll have a good conversation about that. Can you start off on telling us a little bit about your background and why you would be someone who would take an interest in uh, a movie like this? What's, um, what's your connection? Okay, my, my connection is that I'm a big fan of the book, The Name of the Rose, which came out in 1980. The translation came out in 1983. But anyway, I read it. William Weaver, who died not long ago. Yeah, yeah, I was sad about that. Um, And I read the translation in my first year of undergrad. You didn't read the Italian one. I'm sorry. I'm disappointed. (laughs) I read it in the first year of my undergrad uh, when I was doing history, and I didn't quite know what I was going to do within history. And it, I found it mind-blowing. And it set me off down a road into medieval studies, and I'm a medievalist. I've just oh, finished I did not my PhD. Know that. I didn't know that the book was so central to Yeah, it. pretty much, yeah. That's cool. Um, so having read the book, it really kind of... The, the book is very good at getting you into the kind of the mindset. So you watched an 80s movie based on a book that you really liked. This couldn't possibly go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's never... No yeah. one has ever been disappointed by a movie version of a beloved book, have they? <laughs> Never. I don't think, I've never heard of that happening. Um, I, have, I, ha, I have actually seen the movie before a few times, not, not for many years, but it was your first time. You got me into reading... It, right? Yeah, I've never seen the, the movie before. I read the book in college as well. You got me reading Umberto Eco, the author who's Italian. Did I? Yeah, I wouldn't. The only reason I know about him is because I was going through some kind of conspiracy theory book for a period. And you were like, well, if you're going to be into that, like, don't be reading Dan Brown. I wasn't, by the way, just just you know, just in case. Go read Foucault's Pendulum, Foucault's which Pendulum. is okay, right, yeah. is often described by people as well. If you like the stuff Dan Brown writes about, but you'd like it written better, <laughs> how was that? How was that for a description of the book? Because uh, you know, he Umberto Eco is a historian, and he writes about the history of science and belief and art and all that stuff that Dan Brown thinks he knows about, but uh, he can actually string a few sentences together. And conspiracies, because Foucault's Pendulum is really, really about conspiracies. And I love it. I think it's a really interesting take on, on people who believe weird things, and especially in conspiracies. And and from there, I went to read Name of the Rose, the book, which didn't strike me quite as much as Foucault's Pendulum. It, it doesn't have as many themes that like hit home to me, but it's I was impressed by it. My understanding is it was a big seller in the 80s when it came out. And I've, re- I've heard it said that it was more often bought than read. It seems to be a book that spent a lot of time on people's coffee tables. Well, that's a good... Uh, are you talking about The Name of the Rose? Yeah, or? Name yes. of the Rose. That was a good... I, had a, I found a quote earlier. Um, somebody was describing it. Yeah, a lot of people talked about it 
people who were there in the 80s kind of describe <laughs> it as a book. Somebody said it's the book most likely to be left in the Hamptons. Oh, maybe that's what I was thinking uh, Which of. means... You know, which means basically it's the book most likely to be bought in a fit of enthusiasm <laughs> and then left behind on holiday after, um, you know, you've, you've only read a few pages. It is, having read it, it is un- an unlikely candidate for like a bestseller. It's, but it it's, was a best. it was on the New York Times bestseller, top of the bestseller but it, it's list. It's a long for, way for long from, from Dan Brown, isn't it? Like in, in terms of style. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's I mean, he, he he's an academic and it's written to some degree in that style. And it's definitely a very different kind of a book than most bestsellers. But it is a murder mystery at It heart. is a murder mystery and at that's heart, probably, cloaked in academia. That's probably why it's sold better than any of his subsequent <laughs> books. Yes, that's true. Yeah. He's definitely having fun with this book. Yeah, so it's a, should we talk about the yeah, book? Yeah, talk about the book a little bit. Yeah, so the book is, I mean, it's basically a murder mystery. Um, and it's set in a abbey. What's the name of that guy who also writes monk murder mysteries, but their way... They're not academic at all. I don't know. Ellis, something Ellis. No? We have a, a whole pile of the next one. Yeah, no, there's a whole industry now of, of yeah. kind of monk-solving mysteries. There was a TV <laughs> show as well. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's what um, I'm thinking of. So it's a murder mystery, but on the skeleton of this murder mystery, he kind of hangs all kinds of philosophical and theological um, details, and he goes into a lot of detail about semiotics and kind of um, scholastic thought, which would have been the thought of people around that time. So it's set in 1327, I should say. That's a little bit later than your period of interest. It's a bit later than my period of interest. (laughs) I study really like, you know, my main stuff is like 600 years before. Didn't you say say that any date with four numbers is like newfangled stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's practically fancy. Yeah, yeah. It's read, read about that in the newspaper. Brother William use glasses in this book. He does. <laughs> he has uh, a fancy new pair of. And, and we'll and we'll get to that. He's a man of science. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. I remember. I don't remember too much about the plot in detail of the book, but I remember being really struck by the world it creates. And um, I'm not someone who's studied medieval the medieval period, and it's not a, a particular time period that I was always attracted to, like you know, in, in fiction or books or anything. Mm-hmm. But the way that he creates this world was very immersive. And especially he, being a historian of that period, he does a great job of creating the mindset. So like you've got all these characters living in this world and in no way are they just like contemporary characters who are just dressed up with a bit of historical garb, you know, because you get a lot of that in, in historical fiction. They really are living in this worldview where like every assumption they have is completely different from ours. And yeah. Yeah. So that was great. Well, yeah, I was really impressed when I first read it. You know, he really kind of puts you in the, into that mindset and like, you know, only a few pages in, um, there's a, there's a whole chapter or it's like five pages where Adso is looking at a, at the door of the church and the door of the church has carvings in it, which are supposed to represent judgment day. And he's surrounded by all kinds of strange creatures and, and scenes and like, there's, what is it? One, two, yeah, five pages. Five I pages. I, I read the beginning of the book yesterday, and I counted. <laughs> and so you know, when when I was younger, I remember this just just kind of blew my mind, and I was I was there for that. But it would put some people you off. Should, I think. Look, yeah, well, look at the reviews on Amazon. There's a lot of people who wrote reviews that are like, oh, yeah. I was having a good time until I got to that scene where Asdo looks at the fucking door. <laughs> But Echo does things like this but deliberately. That's what's so he? amazing about the book. I, I, think, I heard him say supposedly that the first there's about a hundred pages of straight up history 
at the beginning of Focal's Pendulum that he says he put there to scare off people. To who keep just out the wanted, Yeah, <laughs> effectively. Yeah, people who just thought it was going to be another blockbuster. Yeah. So he does things like that. Uh, but um, you know what I was thinking was that, like, okay, that's weird. No contemporary author would do that. Well, you know, even in historical fiction, that kind of thing is people are not very ballsy enough to do stuff like that. But it, again, it puts you in the mindset of another world where, you know, they didn't have access to much media and therefore, like, seeing pictures on a door might have been a big deal. Like, the, you might not have seen things that look like this. Yeah, area, absolutely. Adso is a young novice. Um, he's kind of, he's the narrator of the book and he's William of Baskerville's um, kind of sidekick. Now, uh, his, that, the Watson to his home. Yeah, so there's a huge Sherlock Holmes thing going on here and even though it's it's this, it's written in scary academic language for many people, uh, there's this kind of central joke going on that it is ultimately a silly detective novel and he really hammers his home with some stuff in the opening chapters where it's very clear that Asdo and Baskerville are supposed to be like Watson and Holmes. You've got one character who's like not as smart as the detective and he's writing the, the like he's chronicling the adventures and yep. he's always there going, huh, what's going on? Explain this to me. Just so that the other guy can look smart. And the fact that he's uh, William of Baskerville, obviously Baskerville from the Holmes book, yeah, um, it's, it's like a combination of, of um, scholastic theologian, so someone like William of Ockham yes. meets Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and so the I think the, the reference to Ockham is not an accident either because he is using reason uh, to try and figure things out about the world around him and it's kind of played out that this is not new but a little bit different perhaps. He sees the world differently. Yeah, so the, I mean, he's. It, I mean, it's kind of deliberately anachronistic in the way that Echo uses, um, kind of the Sherlock Holmes archetype as a way in which to discuss theories about semiotics and and logic. You better tell us what semiotics is. I'm not going to pretend I know. It. Semiotics <laughs> is like the theory of signs. So in the Middle Ages, we're talking about what signs can you kind of see in in the world, because, um, and uh, in fact. You know, the, one of the one of the Christian things was that was the point that the, uh, we can't properly understand the world. Um, knowledge is imperfect in this world. We see through a glass darkly. Have you heard of that? that yes. Quote that's from the from the Bible, and in fact, that is in the first paragraph of Adso's um, um, Adso's introdu- introduction in the book. It's not the first line of the book, but it's the first line of Adso's narration. Do you think there's a touch of what we might consider? post enlightenment thought in in his character the fact that he in william baskerville's character absolutely because he's a man of science he tries to interpret the world in a naturalistic way what struck me is a a naturalistic way and he's he's saying okay i'm still religious i'm still this character from the medieval times and i can't conceive a world without god and the church and all that stuff but that doesn't mean that ordinary things don't happen just because, and that we can't figure out what the natural rules are. Yeah, like I said, so he's, you know, William of Askerville is, I think, deliberately anachronistic. I've always um, been interested in... Sorry, go on. But he, he does draw on that scholastic theology, but yeah, absolutely, he is, he, you know, he's a man out of time, he's a modern man, basically. I've always thought it was weird how, in in historical fiction, right, so it's supposedly read by people who are interested in the period, it's like the author never really believes we will actually accept a hero of yes. that mindset and therefore they always have to be more modern and more out of touch so you know like there's a lot of books about like you know f- female detectives living in time periods where that would have been unusual like highly unusual yes and i mean Ego plays around with that kind of stuff you mentioned the glasses yeah it's just about probable that he would have had access to yeah, a pair of. of glasses but <laughs> it's not very likely 
Um, yeah, and good. as we'll see, that there's some accusations of witchcraft and sorcery that come up <laughs> in the book. And again, he's kind of stretching it a little bit. Um, but you know, it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of on purpose. All right, uh, we're going to start talking about the movie a little bit. What have you got for us? So I found a little bit about um, Umberto Eco's opinion of the movie. So the movie was made in '86. Um, after the the book had been a bestseller three years earlier, some people have interviewed him, and he seems to have been pretty negative. He seemed he he thought it was a travesty. <laughs> <laughs> he thought that all the monks, apart from Connery, were I quote simply far too grotesque looking. I yeah, I'd agree. And with that. you know, after rewatching it, I can I can see I can see where he's coming they from. They all have They're like really... crusty the clown style tonsures, where like. <laughs> Their hair is sticking out way too far. Yeah, and they, they, they look odd. I mean, we'll get to the movie and we can discuss the, the individual <laughs> characters, but there's a few there who are really, you know, yeah, they're, 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 they're grotesque. There's another interview from The Guardian in 2011 where he talks about the movie. He says, A book like this is a club sandwich with turkey, salami, <laughs> tomato, cheese and lettuce. And the movie is obliged to choose only the lettuce or the cheese, eliminating everything else. The theological side, the political side. It's a nice movie. I think he left out the ham, which was Christian Slater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what he means. It's, it's, it's simpler than the... I mean, every movie is sim- of a book is simpler than the book because you spend more time with a book. And that's his point, I think. He's just saying that inevitably you have to leave yeah. out some of the, the slices. Even of the like thing. the best movie anyone could make of a particular book is is going to be less maybe we'll have less material than it I yeah guess. and do you think do you think it's better therefore to to you know so the example make I always, movies from whole cloth or to, yeah i know what you mean the example i always think of is from hell again from alan moore another author who really really hates having his work filmed <laughs> like and, and is at the stage now where he refuses to have his name on anything so if, if, you, if you've seen Watchmen, you know it's like from the comic, illustrated by, is it David Gibbons? Mm. And no mention of who wrote it, because he, he would sue. <laughs> uh, but in From Hell, like it's it's a comic about Jack the Ripper, and he, Alan Moore, completely doesn't do the expected thing. It's not a whodunit. He tells you straight away who it is, and because that's not the point. It's not a detective story. It's about the occult and history and lots of other weird things. And then the movie, which is very interesting, and I like it, but it's a straight up whodunit, because that's the only way Hollywood knows how to how to treat stories like like this yeah i'm not sure where i'm going with that <laughs> just yeah movie adaptations yes do you think that you know you can't get a good movie that's based on a book no i don't it's just it's a different medium it sounds obvious but it's a different medium and you, you have to expect different things from it yeah, and yeah. you know that weird feeling it sounds of, obvious but it's not always you know that weird feeling of watching a, a movie shortly after you've read the book and everything feels like it's happening really fast yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just shows that you spend so many more hours with a book inhabiting it i'm not going to get into an argument about whether or not you have to do more work with your imagination i think that's a bit of a, an elitist kind of an argument yeah because there are things books, movies can do that books can't, but certainly like spending a lot of time with a character is, is different in a book. Yeah, you said that, I mean, movies are just a different medium, but I think what you find a lot with book adaptations is people unwilling to change some stuff around, and so you end up with things like, you end up with uncinematic devices like voiceovers, Yeah, you know, <laughs> which is fine in the book. Yeah, and we'll 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 see we'll how these guys deal with it. We'll see how. So the movie was made. What what did I say? In nineteen eighty six, um, it was directed by a guy called Jean Jacques 
I know. Um, I don't know much else he's done, but he's still, I mean, he's kind of been making movies since. You might know one thing he's done. I know you do. We were talking about it the other day. He directed Enemy at the Gates. Oh, I, yeah, I quite like that movie. It's not perfect, but it, it's got some moments. He also directed a movie called Seven Years in Tibet. I, oh, yes. That with was... uh, a big white man's face on the poster. That's true. A white man who's not allowed to go to China ever because he made that movie. Is that true? That's true. Oh, I did not know that. Probably John Jack I know is not. God, he must have been terrible. <laughs> the white man in question is uh, Brad Pitt. By Brad the way. Pitt, of course. Yes, of uh, course. We all know. We all know. Brad so Pitt. I don't remember this movie really existing because I never saw it in the shop or on TV. And like, what kind of a? Do you think it was a big budget release? It was a pretty big budget release. Apparently, it was a complete flop in the states. Wow. Um, but in Europe and the rest of the world, it 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 did fine. It was it was it did pretty that well. That doesn't surprise me. I won't say it's artsy. It's not, but it it is several steps away from, you know, today's big budget Hollywood adaptations of famous books. Yeah, it's absolutely. a long way from that. The mere fact that it's directed by a French guy, actually, I know I'm assuming a lot here, but that does go a long way towards uh, <laughs> showing how Hollywood may have considered this. Yeah. Okay. So should we get into the movie? Let's talk about then? the movie. Okay. Well, let's just start with the with the the opening question. You've never seen this before. No, never seen it before. What did you think? I liked it. I had a good time with it. Um, I, I get it's hard to imagine watching a movie and and pretending like you've never read the book, because actually, in a way, I find it unhelpful when you have, because like you get that weird feeling like everything is happening fast or different, mm. and you're saying that people stick to the original story sometimes with adaptations, but look what happens when they don't. Fans always freak out when oh, things are different. Than they were in the book. Oh uh, yeah, but sure, that's just idiots. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, I I had I I liked it. Yeah, it was uh, thoughtful. Maybe not thoughtful, but just it, it it kept enough of that initial flavor of you're in this strange world where these these people yeah. have a completely different mindset and set of expectations than you do, and everything is interpreted. Everything that happens to them is interpreted within this this kind of church centric medieval mindset, which. They di- I didn't feel they didn't wa- wash that one. They didn't water it down. They didn't un- until the end. Until the end, yeah. Until the, until the end. And we'll get to that. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> nice <laughs> things happen at the end that didn't happen spoilers in the book. Spoilers <laughs> for the book and the, and the film. Well, the first thing I noticed just was the, the opening, which is always important in a, in, a, in a book like this. They take stuff uh, they take the narration directly from the book so Adzo opens the film talking about he's reminiscing he's an old man he's reminiscing about being a young novice and meeting this guy William of Baskerville and having these adventures and the first thing missing present in the book but is, is missing from the film the book opens in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that's because the book is pretending to be an actual historical document isn't it yes and because it's you know um, the religious and theological themes are present all the way through. Yeah. Kind of like um, if you were writing a book that was pretending to have been from like medieval Islam, you'd start off with, uh, what's that thing they always say? Oh, I can't remember. There's some, yeah, there were special things that you'd expect to find at the beginning of a document. <laughs> you can edit that out. I'll take that <laughs> What I did like was that uh, in the credits, it says... The movie is a palimpsest of Umberto Eco's novel, which was quite nice. <laughs> I would have had to look that word up, but you didn't. I did have to look it up in order to explain it nicely. Explain, so I gotta, it, explain ex- it nicely for us. Google has given me a nice uh, definition here. A manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, but of which traces remain. Ooh. That's, great. That's quite good. I wonder whose idea it was to use that word, like... 
Jacques Le Goff. Jacques Le Goff, famed medievalist Jacques Le Goff, was apparently the historical, what's the word? Consultant. Ad- consultant or advisor on the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll get into our, our impressions of the film. First thing is that they arrive at this monastery and it's all a bit grim yeah. and spooky <laughs> and everyone's walking around in and mud. Horrible. Yeah, every, everywhere is muddy and gross and dirty and there's there's a, a trope used in movies a lot uh, which is, is called the Dung Ages on TV Tropes, if you like that site. And it basically is the, the overused idea that in medieval times, everyone was stupid and, and they didn't know how to clean themselves and everything was gross and filthy. And and it comes it comes from a few places. I mean, a lot of contemporary people know it from Blackadder and from Monty Python, where they're actually making fun of that sort of thing. Yeah. But I like I was calling out like, you know, there's some lovely filth over here, Dennis, because I was reminded of that scene. I was in, absolutely reminded of that movie, scene. In this movie, and it shouldn't really, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, we're beyond that now, right? We shouldn't be still. Yeah, and it's just the kind of, I mean, clearly if you went back in time to pretty much any time before the 19th century, you'd find it pretty horrible and gross. And So and, there's nothing in particularly gross about that. But period. you never see that in a movie set in no, Victor- Roman times. Yeah, so. they always look really civilized. And, oh, they'd, they'd have baths, though, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, of course. But, I mean, you know, there was disease and yeah, you know, all, yeah. All, all, all the rest of that stuff. So it's a little bit... And the monastery, I just find, when they go, whenever they're outside in the monastery, they have the sound effect of the wind howling. Yes, and obviously they're up on a hill, so the wind would be howling, but that's not the point. You only put that sound in if you want to create a certain effect. Yeah, they're trying to make it look spooky and, and murder mystery and the book never feels like that. And I think, yeah, uh, back to Umberto Eco's comment that everyone is far too grotesque looking. Yeah. They really amp up the <laughs> weirdness of the monks. And you can tell who some of the villains might be early on because they try and make people look spooky. and Yeah, spooky... Yeah, and and maybe effeminate and, yes. <laughs> and, and, and weird. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So there's a bit at the beginning where you first meet uh, the two main characters and they're kind of setting it up as this kind of Holmes and Watson duo. I didn't think it was as well done as in the book. At the book, right at the beginning, there's a, a bit where you first find out, you know, how smart uh, William of Baskerville is. And it's just like one of, any, one of those scenes in any Sherlock Holmes story where he first gets to do his trick of figuring out what everything is. And he... These he he tells these guys from the monastery that they're out looking for a horse and he knows it, where the horse went and he knows how nice the horse is and that it belongs to the abbot and, all. and he's able to figure out all this stuff just from and, the, and, the, and nothing the opening scene with him in in the movie isn't quite as powerful as that no he he figures out where the loo is yeah <laughs> <laughs> he does yeah um, that that example from the book is that's I mean that's a very good example of what Echo is doing in the book because that's a perfect example of a Ho- Sherlock Holmes kind of thing all the Dullards are standing around going, how on earth did you know that? And he's saying, oh, I just deduced it logically from this and this and this. It's very um, funny. It's very... But it's also it's also a reference to um, a work by Voltaire. Ooh. Zadig, who figures out, who is able to do similar things about horses, but gets locked up for it. Um, <laughs> because they, they think he's lying. He says, he describes the horse perfectly, and the horse has escaped from uh, some noble or something. And so the people are like, so you saw it run by? And he said, no, I've never seen it before in my life. And they think he's lying, and they lock him up. So and it's a kind he of couldn't a, possibly know. It's a philosophical kind of um, yeah. kind of novel. So he's, you know, that's what's happening in the book. Obviously, you can't you can't have that in the movie. And I mean, it's fine. 
yeah but i just thought it was a good intro and it was a good explanation of the the kind of duality that echo is going for in the book which is like number one it's all it's all written in this like initially very intimidating kind of uh, pro style which is very academic intimidating for me anyway and uh, but at the same time he's letting you know he's winking and nudging and saying hey it's all sherlock holmes you recognize this don't <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah. It's, i'm not being that serious and there's some very funny stuff in the in the preface as well where he talks about how he found this supposed manuscript and you know and the start of the movie by contrast is very grim very serious and it so much so that it, it takes a while before like sean connery kind of relaxes a bit and starts you know being himself and or before we get a chance to even see you know yeah to see him do anything yeah it's it's a while which is interesting it it makes the, the world of the movie feel very immersive and very alien and a bit scary but i'd have liked to have seen sean connery kind of being himself a bit earlier because he's really fun in this one i enjoyed i enjoyed sean connery absolutely one one thing i really enjoyed in in one of the first scenes was the fact i mean if if william is sherlock holmes in the novel in the movie he's a little bit columbo (laughs) right because you've got that scene where um the abbot the abbot comes in there's been a death in the monastery we find out they haven't told william this but he's kind of deduced it from looking out the window and seeing the fresh grave and so on. And the abbot is saying, is everything fine? You, you must be tired. And William's saying, no, it's fine, it's fine. And just as the abbot is leaving, he's saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry to see that one of your brethren has, <laughs> yes. has, passed, on, has passed on. And it was a very Columbo moment. You know, Columbo's like, oh, one more thing. And that's the kicker. Would that have been made around the same time, 1986? Oh, God, I'm sure. I mean, it's still on TV now, right? Well, yeah, well, I mean, would it have been current? It's a TV series from 1971 <laughs> to 2003, so I think okay. we're pretty safe. <laughs> we're pretty safe in saying that maybe there's a little Columbo going on. So, you know, William of Baskerville is kind of every detective merged into one. He's the platonic ideal of the detective. For a while, I really felt like they were not going to be as upfront about that. Like, it just seemed so serious and all the characters were so dour that i thought oh they're not going to like be having the fun that Echo and there's is. no color in that monastery no anywhere everything is grim and there's the like book, a- he spends so much time talking about how nice the garden is and how well kept everything is yes but like and they, they don't have you know nothing's painted it's all like this bare bare stone the only dash the only point at which you see a little bit of color is near the end when we see that guy running out with the gold thing oh yeah uh, but we'll get to that later uh, it's a while before you know Basketball is saying things like elementary. <laughs> yes. At which point they, <laughs> but he does start of, they put their cards on their table or else they, maybe they just couldn't hold Sean Connery back. Maybe the director didn't want to. He was like, no, Sean, I don't want this to be a joke. And he's like, try and stop me. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I, I know. I have deduced that that's exactly how, what happened behind the scenes. Okay, Kian. What did you think of Christian Slater's performance? <laughs> I... I didn't know what kind of accent he was trying to do. I mean, Christian Slater is... I'm just going to look it up now, but I assume... I think he's American, right? Yeah, I wonder how old um, he was. Yeah, he's he an that. American actor. He was born in 1969, and if that was 86... Oh, he'd have been... 17, well, 16 maybe when it was yeah. filming. Yeah. Okay, you know. Okay. Um, Christian Slater, yeah, I mean, he... He didn't ruin it for me or anything. He seems to have a thing for bad accents, though. <laughs> I mean, he? the only other thing I can really think of that... I've seen him in is oh he was in Fern Gully the last rainforest mm-hmm. um, but the only Perhaps. other thing I can really think of is Heathers have you seen Heathers yes I like Heathers the dark comedy that's a good movie yeah that's that's a very good movie but do you remember him in it he's the guy is he the kind of the love interest who's... yeah he's the love interest I mean who who kind of yeah with Winona Ryder who starts killing people with Winona yeah, Ryder that's right yeah and he, for the entire movie he's doing this weird faux Jack Nicholson thing <laughs> do you remember that where he's, he's like greetings and salutations. <laughs> yeah. 
I have to watch that again. Yeah, and I mean, he said he said in an interview that that's what he was doing. But why? Well, I I felt like his character wasn't in it enough to really bother me. Like he doesn't do yeah. a whole lot. He's there. And because he's not actually, because it's not a book, you're not actually listening to his voice the whole time. So the point of him being there is kind of lost. Like he's a Watson, he's just I mean, there he to occasionally go. does the thing where he'll ask the questions oh, who so are the, the audience Who can. are the Carthaginians or, you know, some historical thing that <laughs> the audience are not going to know about? Yeah, anything else about Christian Slater? Well, he just spends most of the movie standing around his mouth agape. <laughs> you know, he doesn't really bring anything to the role. And then so much so that when it actually gets to his plot point, which is... His relation with this this peasant girl. Relation with this, with this filthy, <laughs> filthy but somehow Mud beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, and you know she's just groomed. had a Brazilian. Yeah, she's groomed. <laughs> so like when it gets to that point, we've seen so little of him, like really as a character, or he said so little or done so little that it kind of feels like it's there because it's in the book. Yeah, and we don't know enough about him or really care to. It kind of came uh, out he of has nowhere. a certain amount of a certain function, but he certainly. I mean, I think you can. He is the narrator in the book, so you you can kind of be on his side in the, yeah. in the film, not so much. So I had an issue with the girl, the use of the woman in the in the story. Yeah, and I didn't notice it as much when I read the book. It was a long time ago, and I'm not letting Umberto Echo off the hook for this either, because the same thing kind of does happen in the book. But she is the only female character in it, and she's only there as a kind of a plot device, and she literally doesn't get any lines at all. And and she's only there to uh, as someone for Christian Slater's character to kind of play off with his his guilt and his sense of you know his kind of messed upness about his sexuality and stuff you know mm-hmm. and, and some interesting scenes do come out of that but she doesn't really get a say in anything now given the circumstance it's a monastery it would have been a little bit artificial if they had tried to work in like lots of you know powerful female characters this is not the movie well, there for was, it there was abbesses there know? was abbe- maybe there's things they could have done then i don't know well it wasn't in the book either but i think the problem was they took that from the book and it but it wasn't as important in the book and they kind of blew it up and by blowing it up they bring more attention to it right yeah because that's a smaller scene in the book and it's a smaller plot thread as well he doesn't like try to rescue her at the end or anything he just feels guilty and he's confused yeah. About it, you know, the conflict between his feelings and his teachings, right? Which is interesting, and the book does do some interesting stuff with that. I don't know, I just really felt like... Why stick- it, it felt a bit more knowing in the book, just from my memory. I mean, when he confesses to William of, um, William of Baskerville that he's had sexual relations with a, with a lady, he's kind of... You can see him cycling through all these different ways of viewing it, and he t- he starts he kind of goes, "Oh, she's a harlot at one point, right?" So there's a bit more knowing stuff going on. Whereas in the movie, it's just like he's in love with her because it's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, because I mean that that peasant girl is basically is like the medieval equivalent of you know in high school movies where there's an ugly girl and they show she's ugly by giving her like glasses, glasses. and messy hair but then they take the glasses off and they fix the she's, hair and she's, she's beautiful. jennifer jason lee that's like that's what was going on here with her you know once you just take off the rags and kind of wipe the the dirt yeah. away a bit she's incredibly good looking well, for a medieval peasant it's just like she turned up to give him a moral quandary and then she disappears in the book which is kind of bad enough, but then in the movie they kind of try and make him to more of a plot point where he's he is in love with her, and then he sees her again at the end. And well, I mean, she does get she does get captured, and she does she's in the, she is put on trial in the, in the trial the scene. Yeah, 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 that's true. And in fact, in the movie she escapes, whereas in the book she 
is sent off with Bernardo Gui and presumably, you know, her life is going to be pretty short. Tell us a that. bit about Bernardo Gui. Bernardo Gui or Bernardo Gui. I like that. Sean Connery. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of Gui. <laughs> yeah, so he's, a, I mean, he's a real life character. In the book, he acts as the, the kind of the antagonist. He comes to the monastery. He refuses to believe William of Baskerville's explanations for the murders. And he kind of sees that there's witchcraft and stuff going on. I mean, he catches one of the monks kind of in, engaged in kind of folk tradition or trying to kind of kill a chicken or something to do some magic. So he's, he's corrected. There's a bit of magic going on, but he kind of, Puts these, uh, puts this monk and the girl and another monk on trial, and and you know it's it's not. A... And one of them is played by the wonderful Ron Perlman. Yes, in the movie, the he's uh, played by Salvatore is played by Ron Perlman, better known these days as Hellboy. Hellboy, yeah. What else was he in? He was also in a really bad medieval movie with Nicolas Cage called Season of the Witch. Oh, why didn't we watch that? We will. <laughs> I think we'll have to. It is terrible, but he's often the best thing about a bad movie that he's in. Yeah, he's a really, really interesting, entertaining character who has a really unfortunate face and is never going to be <laughs> is never going to be a leading man who doesn't have to wear lots of uh, makeup, yes. prosthetics. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't actually in this. He doesn't talk normally in this movie. He talks in this mishmash of of languages, which means that kind of the Ron Perlman I like isn't quite there. He doesn't get to express himself that way. But the way he talks is really interesting, and it's it must have been a job writing his dialogue. Okay, we were talking about the problem of everyone being kind of filthy and covered in muck. Yeah. There was an interesting scene where the papal envoys arrive and yes. their carriage is stuck in the mud and they're just kind of looking out in all their finery and all the plebs have to push the carriage out of the mud. Um, and I thought that was a bit more interesting. You know, that's, that's I mean, that's true and it, it's showing something, it's saying something and it's better than just everyone being covered in mud. What about at the beginning when the people in the monster are literally shitting on the villages? <laughs> Because <laughs> they're like at the bottom of the of the hill, and all this all their rubbish and their crap is coming out of the towers. Yeah, it's just a bit like you know. I mean, maybe that you know. We get it. It's a symbol. We get it, though. Yeah, <laughs> we get it. And there's a bit where Christian Slater wants to see the girl again, so he goes to her village, and they're portrayed in like the most <coughs> disgusting way possible. Now, I was thinking that if he was a monk and he was from you know, if he for him to be in that position, he might have had to have been from a family that had a bit of money. So maybe. And that's fine, but that's not really what... They don't really seem to get that across, do they? Because... I, I'm not really sure what, what they're doing with that scene. Is yeah. it supposed to be like he feels sorry for her and he wants to rescue her from this horrible peasant life? He just wants to see her because he's in love. Yeah, but why do they emphasize the horribleness of her family? Because they're all like horrible and they're missing teeth and they're <laughs> they're literally grubbing around in muck. Uh, and, like, they're, they're probably muck farmers like in... <laughs> the Holy Grail. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I feel like we've uh, won. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the other monks in the monastery because they all have important characters in the book. And yes, there's a number of monks there like Berengar. So Berengar is one of the suspects who eventually he, he turns up murdered. But he's... Is he the one who looks like Uncle Fester? He looks like, in the movie, he looks like a cross between Varys from... Game of Thrones and Uncle Fester <laughs> from the Adams family. He's grotesque. He's just ridiculous looking, and he and part of this grotesquery is that he's supposed to look. A, he's supposed to seem a bit effeminate. He because part of the plot is the that choir. some of the monks are engaged in you know unnatural acts with each other. Basically, they're uh, homosexuals. Yeah, 
Was that in the book? Was he? That was in the book. Yeah. Again, eighties. No, that certainly probably happened a lot in monasteries, but just oh, with, but like the, the I mean, but just the, with normal people, not with I weird mean, the, the way that he's Uncle pres- Fester, <laughs> like, and he's just the way he's portrayed. There's a scene where a mouse comes into the library and he starts shrieking and jumps up on the, the yeah, stool. And he sings soprano in the choir. It's, and a, it's that. a bit weird, you know. Yeah, so he's very he's very blubbery and chubby and feminine. Yeah. And every other monk is really like, there's a guy who looks like he's one of the Easter Island heads. <laughs> you know, there's, um, there's the kind of the, 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 the guy with the big beard and the big nose, which is obviously uh, makeup. <laughs> Prosthetic. Talk about the, Borg, the guy who's supposed to be Borg in, in the library. Right. So the, the old librarian is called Jorge of Burgos. <laughs> now, in the book, that's a reference to... Uh, the Argentinian writer, Jorge Luis Borges. And the link there is that Borges liked to write about libraries and labyrinths and mirrors and this kind of thing. And once William uh, and Adso start to investigate the library, they find that inside there's a kind of a labyrinthine structure uh, where all the books are hidden away and the librarian... Yorge is obsessed with kind of keeping these dangerous books out of the hands of the public, basically. I like the way that was portrayed in the movie. I thought that was one of the best parts. I thought the library was very good. The sets were good. We should say that. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very easy for them to do a lot of uh, matte painting stuff to like try and show this like cavernous labyrinthine library. And they they're much more restrained. Like it's still you still get the sense of wonder that they're in somewhere really unusual and slightly fantastical and possibly you know, there's a fantasy element that maybe it looks bigger on the inside than it is on the outside and how much of that might just be in their heads. And I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, I thought they did, the movie also did a good job of kind of getting you inside William's head when he sees all the books. Oh, yeah. The importance of manuscripts in, you know, at this time. Yeah, this he's is before, so excited about getting into the library. You know, before the invention of printing, you know, he, the, the, the main manuscript that kind of comes up in the plot is a copy of Aristotle writing about comedy which is doesn't exist in the real world or at least hasn't survived and the idea that this is the last copy and of course spoilers it gets burned up at the end in the fire that, that had me thinking about library. echo's whole idea like his whole dichotomy between the academia of his book and the comedy i like the fact that it's this kind of low form of entertainment as a detective novel yeah you know and and yet the one of the main themes of the book is how important like humor is and how that's as important as any other kind of learning. Yes. And when we don't acknowledge that or repress that, then bad and things happen. And there's a nice little nod to Umberto Eco in the, <laughs> in the film that I noticed this time, where they, they find uh, a manuscript. I can't remember who it's by, actually. I should have known it that down. But uh, William says something like, like, oh, this is the version annotated by Umberto de Bologna. So Umberto <laughs> Eco, he's from Bologna. That's fantastic. It's a nice little... Yeah. Nice little nod. Did it look to you like all of the, the some of the scholarship from the book had made it into the movie? Like a lot of the things mentioned were real manuscripts or real authors. Or... Yeah, I mean all the all the stuff they mentioned in the library, from what I remember, was was were real authors a lot of that and stuff, and stuff gets, that was likely to you know be in a monastery. A lot of that detail gets left behind in movies a lot. Yeah, where they that's just true. figure that no one's going to care or whatever. I really, I was reminded of like this notion of a world, yeah, like you said, prior to printing and stuff. So when, you know, learning was slow and, and having access to information was difficult, like it, books must have seemed like magic, you know, the the ability to transfer 
words and, and knowledge from person to person. Well, they were just so, um, they were so expensive, you know? And, on, you know, in order to get your hands on a book or to make a manuscript, you know, it took an, an amazing amount of effort and money. You know, just imagine the amount of calves they would have to kill to make one of those manuscripts. Yeah, well, to make the vellum. Sean Connery is, is great in that scene where he finds all the books first in the library and he's really excited about it. And, you know, I, we like books and we got excited this week in Galway going to <laughs> Charlie, Charlie Burns. Burns. Yeah, uh, it's a good bookshop if you're in Galway. And just, we, yeah, I know that feeling. And he, he conveyed that really nicely. And just it made it a very powerful evocation of a time that where they must have meant even more. All right, so one of the actors who he's playing one of the monks is F. Murray Abraham. What yeah, do we he know plays, about him? He plays the baddie, Bernardo Gui, uh, uh, member of the Inquisition, and he's uh, he's a kind of a horrible character. I didn't character. expect him to be in it. In the movie. See, see what it did there? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, nobody would have expected that. Edit that, that out. <laughs> but you might, I mean, he won an Oscar in 1984 for Amadeus. Antonio Saleri and I feel like he's a little similar to you you were talking recently about Bob Hoskins and how people kind of <laughs> like get that. a bit you know he, he kind of never quite made it or something I feel like F. Murray Abraham peaked too early with that Oscar and he kind of he never quite reclaimed that and I think he's uh I was gonna I was gonna say stuff about him being bitter but I'm, I'm just I'm just uh he was in all the president's men on Scarface yes. maybe we'll edit this out <laughs> uh, but I'll yeah I'll continue talking so F. Murray Abraham was in some films recently that I saw did you see Inside Lewin Davis? I would like to I've not seen it or yet. The Grand Budapest Hotel I have seen The Grand Budapest Hotel yeah so he's like the older he's the older main character looking back oh yeah the bellboy you know yeah which actually is quite similar to the, the setup of The Name of the Rose with the, the guy looking back anyway F. Murray Abraham pretty Pretty good at portraying a despicable... Yes, he's horrible in this movie. We hated him. But in the book, uh, Bernardo Gui leaves the monastery. He takes his three prisoners with him, you know, in including the peasant girl. They're going to meet a horrible end. He gets away with it. He's fine. He's going to live to a ripe old age. And he has to because he's a real historical figure. That's true. And so you can't just kill him off in a book. Not so with Whereas movie. in the movie, in an unlikely turn of events... <laughs> There, the 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 library is on fire. F. Murray Abraham, Bernardo Gui is trying to get out, so he gets in his carriage and gets his men to speed out the gates. But somehow they fall over, and the peasants have a chance to pull him back up. But they push the carriage over further, and it falls off a cliff. And he he gets impaled on some kind of device, doesn't he? Yes, and he gets impaled on some spiky yoke. And we cheered because he's he's a really despicable character. And it's great. I did really enjoy seeing him get his comeuppance, but it is a very different ending to the yeah. book, really. It's the only part at which we felt it kind of kind of submits to the Hollywood formula. Oh, not just that. Also the love story. Oh, well, yeah. Um, when I mean, one of the last scenes, they're leaving and, and the girl comes out. and. So he he says, you know, the the old version of the character narrating, Christian Slater's guy, mm -hmm. he says, oh, the one thing I always remember was that girl and I wondered what she was like and blah, blah, blah. Isn't that in the book? I think that's in the I book. I think that's in the book. I too. think that's in the book. So I felt like even though maybe it wasn't as much of a plot thread as it was in the movie, at least Echo acknowledges, you know, that this guy who's had this adventure and lived this life of wonders and is full of, you know, appreciation for the, the wonders of the Christian universe. Still, the thing that gets him most is was, was that, that that happening with her. Yeah. I just 
you know, they didn't pull that from nowhere. Yeah. He's still impl- implying that these kind of relationships are important. They have an importance beyond everything else to this guy looking back at his life. Yeah. And I haven't read the end. We're looking at the end now. We will tell you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to see. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, he end the, the, the narrator, the old Adso, the narrator in the movie, ends by saying, I never learned her name or something. And it's implied that, I mean, does that mean that she is the rose of the title? The name Ooh, of the rose? I read and that. And it's very <laughs> unsubtle and, in and the... bad because that's not what... <laughs> well, I, I've, maybe you've come across something else. I'm sure I read an interview with Echo years ago where he said that it's a deliberately ambiguous title. and Exactly. exactly. It's full of, it's ripe with potential for reading into it as a symbol. But Whereas the movie is more, nope. We're going to make it the name of this sexy lady. Wouldn't want anyone. Wouldn't want anyone to like have to argue on the way out of the cinema as to what the title was. <laughs> yeah. And there's a beautiful ending shot of both of them on their on Why their, was that on called their Star Wars? I don't. I, why, why, why do they call that movie Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. The stars weren't fighting. I'm confused. People were fighting and aliens. <laughs> there's a bit of that going on. It was a great ending shot, though. Lovely. The cinematography was nice all the way through. Very beautiful cinematography. Beautiful location as yeah, well. Yeah, and even though we've moaned about the the abbey looking a bit grimy, all, all the architecture is really nice and well filmed. And the fog and stuff, is it's very evocative. It's just a, a slightly different kind of an atmosphere they're trying to create, I suppose. Yeah. There's a few anachronisms in the movie. Uh, I've noticed the... I've noted the purposeful acronisms in the book yes um like the fact that william is, is basically a modern person but there's no <laughs> what happens is these three characters uh, get pulled up before the inquisition there's the peasant girl and two monks and they're accused of witchcraft or sorcery or whatever and they're carried away by bernardo gui when he leaves the monastery yeah in the movie they need to amp it up a little bit make it a bit more exciting so in fact bernardo decides to burn them all at the stake Right there and then. Well, now, burning witches, as you probably know, it's not. Well, I saw that happening in Season of the Witch with Nicolas Cage, so I assumed it must be real. Oh, right, sorry. Is that a <laughs> historical document? It, is, yeah. <laughs> it was actually filmed on, on location uh, during me- the witch trials. I mentioned that there's a problem in the book, even with the idea that sorcery would have been coming up. But, you know, you can stretch that a bit. They definitely weren't going to go around burning witches like that. Um, it's very much playing into the modern yeah. picture of the Middle Ages, I think. Yeah, sure. What would they have done? What was what was their attitude towards that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, they might have been killed. But just not burned? Yeah, not okay. burned alive at the stake. All right, so they That's wouldn't, have like, had a, they wouldn't be know. having a good time either. No, they wouldn't be having a good slap time. On the no, ri- no slap I don't on the think wrist. so. <laughs> <laughs> just making sure. All right, anything else to say about the movie? I was going to, well, just to say that the abbot was much more sympathetic in the book. Yeah, he's really evil. He's really obviously sinister, right? He, yeah, he's just he's just a kind of a one-dimensional sinister character in the book, whereas or in the in the movie, whereas in the book, like all those former heretics and stuff, he's he's kind of sheltering people in yeah. his monastery. It does serve to function in the movie as a bit of a red herring, though, because I was kind of oh maybe he's the bad guy, you know, or maybe he's involved in the plot somehow. When in fact, him being a bit of a scum scumbag really just plays into the trial scene where he's like too weak-willed to stand up to the Inquisitors. Yeah. But he's a good actor too, whoever that was. Whoever that guy was. He reminds me intensely of somebody, but I don't, I don't know who it is. Should we look it up? Let's look him up. 
What's uh, the character's name? Michael Lonsdale. Let's find out what he was in. Michael Lonsdale is known for Moonraker. Oh, he's Hugo Drax in Moonraker. That's who he is. Oh, my God. There you go. He's one of my favorite Bond villains. That's why I recognize him. He's also in Munich and Ronan. Yeah, there you go. That's cool. And he's in a lot of movies, none of which I've heard of. 236 acting credits on IMDb. Wow. All right. Any other wrap-ups points? Just to wrap up, I guess, um, how did you, what did you think overall? I enjoyed it. I, I wonder what I would have thought going into it having not read the movie, having not read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I started off being a bit annoyed by all the um, mud and the grimness and the fact that this very powerful monastery, which is rich and is a center of politics, you know, can't afford a, a lick of paint or a bit of gold around the place. But then I really got into it. I enjoyed Sean Connery's performance as William. I enjoyed the mystery. And I enjoyed the baddie. I enjoyed it really right up to the end, where they decided that, no, the love interest girl was going to escape. The big baddie was going to get his comeuppance and in a classic Hollywood way by falling on some spikes. <laughs> yeah. And the and then and then they do all that and then they try to make the ending sad again, like they're kind of sad and they're leaving the monastery. Yeah. But in the book, it's genuinely sad because everything's gone <laughs> to shit. <laughs> Whereas in the movie, I mean, Ad So should be delighted. His love got away. The baddie got killed. He should just be thinking, "Oh, this is great! Like God, God does exist, and he likes me." Maybe he hasn't read the book, so he doesn't know how bad it could be. <laughs> Yeah, so Christian Slater is going off to, you know, have adventures with with William of yeah, Baskerville for was, a few more years. It's we actually were, a very, very nice ending. But it would be a good setup for a TV series. <laughs> yeah, who, would, who would play those two characters if uh, that series had been made in the 80s and they couldn't get the original Hollywood actors? <laughs> who would play Sean Connery's character? I don't know. Who played young Indiana Jones? Was that in the 80s? Oh, yeah, he, be... could be, he could be Aslo. And then, and then Baskerville could be like... Uh, I don't know the guy out of Third Rock and the Sun or something. <laughs> who's the Who's the budget Sean Connery? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, maybe they could have got a. You know, uh, he, he would have been too young there. I don't know. They could have got like Christopher Plummer or something. He probably probably wasn't doing anything, was he? <laughs> he had nothing better to do. He was making Hawk the Slayer that year. I'm pretty sure he had nothing better to do. There you go. You see. All right. To finish up, any any recommendations? People must ask you this all the time. What is a good medieval movie? That's a good question. I don't. Are know. there any? You see, th- I mean, this is probably the best medieval movie. Whoa! I haven't seen that many. I don't really. You've make not it seen my season business. of the witch. I haven't seen season of the witch. So that <laughs> I mean, that might be the best medieval movie. We it's, don't. It's we just not. don't know. But no, I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen that many. All right. Well, we'll we'll come up with something for next maybe, time. Well, maybe we'll just have to find out together. We'll journey each and every week in different exciting adventures, <laughs> played by Christopher Plummer and John Lithgow. <laughs> You can be Christopher Plummer. <laughs> I finally thought of his name. Okay. All right. I guess we're done. Good. Let's just, as a, as, a, as a final thing, let's note that there's one moment where they're all gathered around a dead body, all the monks, and we hear an Irish voice saying something along the lines of, He's dead, just like William Baskerville said. <laughs> And we don't see who says it. I hope it was Mick Lally. <laughs> I think it was. It might have been Mick Lally. He is every Irish bit actor in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> I've de- ever since I saw Alexander, I've decided <laughs> that's his job. 
Uh, and also, I enjo- also enjoyed the bit the, the 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 library and the abbey and everything is burning down at the end. Everything's going go to um, going to pot, and we see this guy running out with like a golden reliquary or something that he's looted. And I thought it was John Cleese. Just and he did think it was John Cleese. I had to pause to make sure it wasn't. But also, but you know, that was a, that was a nice moment. It's literally the only bit of color we saw in the whole movie. <laughs> okay, uh, I guess we're good. Okay, uh, signing off. Thanks for listening. See ya. Oh.